0: Well, good morning, church family. It's great to be with you again today, even though it's in this strange way. Uh, thank you for taking the time to join us for our service today. And let's come now to God's Word together. We're going to be looking at the next parable in our series on the parables of Jesus. And so, won't you turn in your Bibles to Luke chapter 12? Luke chapter 12, and we're going to be reading from verse 13 to 21. This is the parable of the rich fool just as you're turning there, a special word of thanks to to Gary for leading us in our service this morning as we came to, to worship the Lord and appreciate that time that we had to worship God this morning. Well, let's read together from Luke chapter 12 and from verse 13. Someone in the crowd said to Jesus, Teacher, tell my brother to divide the inheritance with me. with the one who lays up treasure for himself and is not rich toward God. Well this is God's word and uh, Gary's already prayed that God would be pleased to add his blessing to the reading and the preaching of the word today. And one of our great concerns as elders, as we seek to shepherd the people of God here at Honey Ridge, and I know this is a concern that I share with with other pastors uh, in their congregations, is what seems to be a growing disconnect between the apparent spiritual life of people in the church and then the public life which they live out in the world. There seems to be a growing disconnect between what people claim to know and understand at least intellectually about the gospel in their heads and then the outflow of their hearts in terms of their speech and their attitudes and their actions. And perhaps some of you have already entered into that disconnected space this morning, maybe not deliberately, but but it's happened. The singing time is over, the, the pastors opened the Bible, and, and you know that what's coming is probably going to be hard work to, to keep mentally and, and spiritually engaged. And already the thoughts of tomorrow's work challenges or, or yesterday's argument with your wife or your fallout with your mother-in-law or the drama with your teenage child, whatever it may be, a host of things have come flooding into your mind And so you have disengaged your mind from what God is trying to say to you in His Word. Why do we find it so hard to apply our minds to the things of God? Why is it so easy to spend hours watching TV or scrolling through Pinterest or or Instagram or playing sport or pursuing our hobbies or even pursuing our careers? And yet... Five minutes into reading the Bible, we we fall asleep. We get totally preoccupied with other thoughts. Well, that is the context into which Jesus finds himself preaching in Luke chapter 12. There were people physically present listening to his preaching, but their minds were far away. And so I want us to see how Jesus handled this situation and then learn from the corresponding parable which he told. And so we start this morning by really just setting the scene uh, in verses 1 to 14. So the scene for this parable actually starts uh, back in chapter 12, verse 1. And we won't read the 14 verses, but in verse 1 we read this. In the meantime, when many thousands of people had gathered together that they were trampling one another, Jesus began to say to his disciples, Beware of the leaven of the Pharisees, which is hypocrisy. Hypocrisy is really another word for this disconnect between uh, the internal and the external, between what we claim to be as Christians and the way we live our lives. And so that's the, the context, the setting into which we find ourselves. So here's Jesus. He's out in the countryside. He's teaching the people as was his practice. And we are told that large crowds gathered to hear him, so much so that they were trampling on each other, thousands of people. And he starts to preach to his disciples, but in a way in which these large crowds can can listen in. And in verses 2 to 12, if you just glance over those verses, Jesus gets into some really deep spiritual issues with his disciples. He speaks to them of the hypocrisy of so much of what was called religion or Jewishness of their day. And that everything which, which is currently being hidden and, and covered up under this banner of, of spirituality will one day be exposed in full. Then Jesus goes on and he speaks to them about persecution and that they must not fear men for God is the one who has the authority to cast people into hell. And then he speaks about the fact that if we deny Jesus before men, then he will deny us before God the Father. And then he goes on to talk about the unforgivable sin of blasphemy against the Holy Spirit. But those who love God uh, will be strengthened and equipped by the Holy Spirit when they are persecuted for the sake of Jesus. This is heavy stuff. This is deep theological teaching with, with massive spiritual and practical implications. And it must have been hard work for the disciples to, to stay engaged and to, to get their heads and hearts around all that Jesus was saying and to try and think out, uh, or think through the practical outworkings of what Jesus was saying. And, and so that's the, the context that brings us then to verse 13. There is someone in the crowd who, all of this time that Jesus has been speaking about these eternally important spiritual truths—truths truths which would impart, uh, would, would, which would impact whether they would go to heaven or to hell—this one chap in the crowd pipes up: "Teacher, tell my brother to divide the inheritance with me." It's a little bit like when you're having a moment of deeply significant communication with your husband or your wife. You're sharing with them the, the, the concerns and the deep thoughts of your heart. And you pause for their response only to hear the other person say, Now don't forget to buy the toothpaste tomorrow because the kids finished it tonight. What's going on here is quite Astounding. And yet, before we judge this guy, let's not look too far away from our own hearts and reactions this morning. Here was a man in the presence of the Son of God being given this rare opportunity to hear God in the flesh speak about the deep truths, the profound spiritual truths of the kingdom of heaven. And yet we find this man... His heart and his mind are totally disengaged. Why is that? What is going on in this man's heart? Well, we find that he is totally preoccupied with the things of this world. His his dad had died, and the inheritance, which normally would have been the, the family land, the family farm, was passed on to two sons. And it was usually kept intact so that the two brothers could then continue the farming of the land for the benefit of the family. But now this one son wants out. He wants his share, which either means that the brother has to subdivide and split the farm and sell off half, which would have directly impacted on the kind of economic viability of the other half, Or the brother has to buy him out. But the details don't really matter. The point is that this guy wants his money. He wants the hard cash. And he's not getting it. That's all that he's thinking about. And so he wants Jesus to fix his earthly problem. And so in a rude and insensitive way, he interrupts Jesus' teaching on what is truly important in order to get Jesus to settle this very personal domestic matter. He had no thought for Jesus, no thought for his teaching, no thought for the disciples or the crowds who were listening. He came to Jesus to get something from Jesus, and he was going to stake his claim on Jesus. Tell my brother to give me my share of the inheritance. And so we see Jesus responds very sternly to this man in verse 14. But he said to him, man, who made me a judge or arbitrator over you? Jesus was not prepared to get sucked into this man's domestic issues. This was not Jesus' calling or, or purpose for coming into the world. Jesus came to to preach the good news of the kingdom of heaven. He came to save his people from their sins, and he was not going to get sidetracked into settling earthly disputes between individuals, particularly those that pertain to earthly things. Of course, no one in all the world was better qualified to get involved than Jesus. Of course, Jesus could have given the perfect ruling in this instance, but it was not Jesus' place to get involved because that was not his mission. One commentator says Jesus did not come to resolve the financial disputes of the world, but rather to open for us the door to wealth in the world to come. So rather than just brushing the man aside or ignoring him or avoiding the issue or, or getting sucked into the details of this man's situation, Jesus in all his perfect wisdom, uses the opportunity to turn the situation around in order to redeem this rude interruption for the cause of the kingdom. And so in the second place, we see the probing of the heart in verse 15. Let's read that together, verse 15. And Jesus said to them, Take care and be on your guard against all covetousness for one's life, Does not consist in the abundance of his possessions. Now, here we see the infinite wisdom of God in the flesh as Jesus looks beneath the the external outburst of this man and begins to probe his heart and to probe the hearts of all those who were listening. Jesus recognized that, that this man's inappropriate question was not driven by injustice but by a far deeper-seated issue of the heart, namely greed. Greed. The man wanted more money. He wanted money more than the Word of God. He wanted material things rather than the spiritual bread and and the water, which Jesus said will give eternal life. He wanted the things of this world from Jesus instead of Jesus, instead of knowing God through Jesus. His heart was riddled with with covetousness, with with greed, with a desire for more. But there is even more going on here because it, it was not just greed that was this man's problem. Yes, greed is certainly a sin, but there is a sin underneath the sin of greed which Jesus reveals here. Jesus is going after the root sin, the underlying sin. Of idolatry. In what or whom do we find our worth and our identity? What is it that we really treasure and worship? And so Jesus gives us a a very strong warning here. He says, Beware. Or be on your guard against. And, and this really means to take positive action, to, to ward off an enemy that was coming to attack you. Beware, says Jesus. Make every effort to fight off the enemy of God that is coming in the form of greed because it will destroy your soul. And then notice how he goes even deeper into this man's real problem when he says, for one's life, does not consist in the abundance of his possessions. Jesus recognized that this man's real heart issue and our real heart issue is one of trying to find our identity and our purpose and our value outside of our relationship to God. This is this is all around us in the world today. It's in the fashion world where we are told that you are what you wear. It's in the the cosmetics world where we are told it's because you're worth it. It's in the property market where we are told you are where you live. It's in the world of cars and motorbikes. You are what you drive. It's in the world of social media. You are if you are liked. And so we could go on. We are surrounded all the time by this all-pervasive thinking that says to us our identity, what our life consists of, is linked to the abundance of our possessions. What we look like, our hair, our skin, our muscles, the things we put on, our clothes, our jewelry, body piercings, tattoos, the things we have or own, cars, home, gadgets... The amount we own, property, investments, money, what we achieve in, in sport or, or work or play. There's a long list of, of things that people attach to the ends of their names. Reverend, Professor, Doctor, PhD, MBA, ABCDEF. These are the things we are told that define us. These are the things which give us value and, and status and, and worth and acceptance and identity. And so we believe the lie of the devil that says that our lives consist in the abundance of the things we possess. And so that leads to us idolizing the the lives of the rich and the famous, the glamour and success and and freedom and fame which they seem to have. And yet, how often are we not reminded in the news that so many of this world who have have so called, achieved all of these great things, fame and everything the world has to offer. They are found dead on the bedroom floor, having taken an overdose of drugs. So Jesus probes this man's heart. He's probing your heart. He's probing my heart today. What is it that defines you? Be on your guard, says Jesus, against all forms of covetousness. All forms. Because coveting is is really pointing to a much deeper-seated heart issue. That you are seeking your identity outside of your relationship to Jesus Christ. So after probing the heart... Jesus knows that that what he is dealing with here is a matter of profound spiritual truth. This is the, the spiritual principles, the spiritual reality which are hidden from our eyes. And so once again, Jesus employs the use of an earthly story, a parable, to lay alongside these truths in order to reveal to us this spiritual truth. That was previously hidden so that we can understand it and see it and and apply it to our lives. And so, in the third place, then we have the parable itself, telling the story in verses 16 to 20. And he told them a parable, saying, The land of a rich man produced plentifully. And he thought to himself, What shall I do? For I have nowhere to store my crops. And he said, I will do this. I will tear down my barns and build larger ones. And there I will store all my grain and my goods. And I will say to my soul, Soul, you have ample goods laid up for many years. So relax, eat, drink, and be merry. But God said to him, Fool, this night your soul is required of you. And the things you have prepared, whose will they be? Once again, this is a very simple story to understand. It's a a well-known story, and and there are a number of ways that we, we can look at these verses, but I want to do so by showing you a striking set of contrasts between the thinking of this rich man and the thinking of God. And we see this by way of the various elements of this very short dialogue between the rich man and God. And hopefully you will see through this how Jesus is not only revealing this man's heart, but how he may well be exposing our own hearts today. So in the first place, we see that the rich man says, I will accumulate my goods. Verse 18. Notice what he says. I will tear down my barns and build larger ones, and there I will store all my grain and my goods. There's just an overriding self-centeredness in this parable, which Jesus is trying to make very clear in verse uh, 18. Actually, 11 times in this parable, we have the reference to I or my. This guy is, is all about himself, and the center of his self-centeredness is his possessions. I will store all my grain and my goods. And and this really reveals the the thinking of what I'm calling the practical atheist. The, The practical atheist is a person who does not see in a practical way his life in relationship to God, in any way dependent on God. Now this may be a person who even goes to church, but it's a person who lives his daily life practically as an atheist because god does not figure in his thinking god is not part of his planning god is not part of of anything that he does in his daily life everything he as a farmer had accumulated yes i'm sure he worked hard and he he sweats he, there was sweat and toil and he was a shrewd businessman and all these things he may have had a deep knowledge of soil and seeds and seasons Everything he had accomplished, he saw as all coming from his own hands and therefore belonging solely to himself. And that's why he said, I will accumulate my goods. But Notice what God said. Verse 16. God says, the land of a rich man produced plentifully. God says, I gave you everything. I'm the one who made and owns the land. I'm the one who sends the rain on the just and the unjust. I cause the plants to grow in season. I water the earth and produce the crops. I give you the knowledge that you have and the skill and the daily health and strength to do your work well. I gave you everything, says God. You are not your own, and your possessions are not your own. They are yours on loan from me, says God, to be used for my kingdom and my glory. James says to us in James chapter 1, verse 16, Do not be deceived, my beloved brothers and sisters. Every good gift, every perfect gift comes from above, coming down from the Father of lights. So that's the first point. The the rich man says, I will accumulate my goods. God says, I gave you everything. Secondly, the rich man says, I will have plenty in verse 19. I will say to my soul, soul, you have ample goods laid up for many years. So relax, eat, drink, and be merry. He counted his bank balance, he he looked at his investment portfolio, he reached that iconic status which we are told is the pinnacle of this life, which is to be financially independent. He never needed to work another day. He had plenty. The stock markets had all turned his way. He got in on the maize price boom. He had made his millions, and now he could retire at 50 and just eat and drink and play golf. I have plenty, he says. I've, I've reached the goal. But notice in contrast what God says. You will have nothing in verse 20. This night you will die, and all that you've accumulated, whose will it become? You can't take a single thing with you. You will cross over the threshold of this life into eternity with nothing. So here we see something of the heart and of this man and what he measured to be of the ultimate value in his life. He valued the things of this world, the temporary things of this world as having ultimate value. When in reality, these things have no value beyond this life. And what we do with them in this life determines what kind of treasures we are storing up in heaven for all eternity. Do you realize that the only value, the things of this life have is determined by how we use them in relation to the next. Because we go out from this world, as we came into this world, naked and with nothing, and only what's done for Jesus Christ will last. I will have plenty, he said, and God responds, you will have nothing. Then thirdly, we see the rich man says, I have many years ahead of me. Verse 19, he said in verse 19, soul, you have ample goods laid up for many years. And again, this is the the practical atheist in him that's speaking. And it's the practical atheist in all of us speaking when we talk just like him. Making plans for the future as if we are in some how, in some way, in control of our lives and what the future holds. Listen to James again, James 4 verse 13. Come now, you who say, tomorrow—sorry, uh, today or tomorrow, we will go into such and such a town and spend a year there and trade and make a profit. Yet, you do not know what tomorrow will bring. What is your life? You are a mist that appears for a a little time and and then vanishes. Instead, you ought to say, if the Lord wills, we will live and do this or do that. But as it is, you boast in your arrogance, and all such boasting is evil. This is the the typical error of so much youthful speech thinking that we, we have our whole lives ahead of us and, and we can think and speak and act and please as we like because we have many years ahead. It's guaranteed. We're young and healthy and fit and strong. I was reading that in World War II, they found 18-year-old boys made the best fighter pilots, markedly even better than 22-year-olds. Do you know why? Because by the age of 22 the pilots were becoming aware of their own mortality. But the 18-year-old pilots thought that they would live forever. What we have in the parable, however, was not this error of youthful ignorance speaking. This man thought that he had many years left because he believed that his life consisted out of what he owned and what he had accumulated. And so his security in life and his longevity of life was not found in God, but in his ability to provide for himself out of his abundance. And So in response to this thinking, God says, this very night your soul is required of you. God is reminding us that every breath we take, every beat of our hearts, every scent that we have to buy food, every plant which grows to provide us with sustenance, every drop of rain needed for water to drink, everything comes from Him. And we are only kept on this earth as long as God determines. And then the fourth thing the the rich man says is, My soul will enjoy life, this life. Look at verse 19. Soul, you have ample goods laid up for many years, so do what? Relax and eat and drink and be merry. You see the focus of this man? Life was all about him enjoying himself. Isn't that the exact philosophy of the world we live in today? Life is about you getting the most out of life for you, for you to enjoy. It's all about you. It's all about me. I'm my own little God, and, and my ultimate purpose in life is to glorify me and enjoy me forever. But God steps in and says, tonight your soul is required of you. Isn't that an insightful saying? Your soul The thing which no one else has access to. The one thing in life which no one else can touch. No one can rob it from you. The very essence of who you are as a person, God says, I require it. And I require it tonight. In actual fact, it was never yours to begin with. God says, I've made you in my image. I've breathed my breath into you. I gave you life. I made you to worship me. I formed you for the purpose of extending my image and my glory on this earth. And now I require your life back. I'm checking you back in to see what you have done with this most precious treasure, which makes you different from all the animals in this kingdom. I'm recalling your soul This very night. And then lastly, we see the rich man says, I've arrived. I've arrived. Now, he doesn't actually say it in those words, but but that's the spirit of everything he says here, isn't it? I've arrived. I've, I've made it. I've, I've reached the top of my career. I've, I've made more money than I will ever know what to do with. I will embark on this massive building project uh, to, to house all my assets and to establish my empire, to create a legacy. And I will enjoy all this wealth and security for many years to come. And I will live a life of fame and, and fortune and comfort. I've arrived. I'm the man. God says to him, you're a fool. You're a fool. Look at verse 20. God said to him, fool, this night your soul is required of you and the things you have prepared, the things you've accumulated, whose will they become? Now here we need to pause. Pause and consider the seriousness of what God is saying. You see, a fool in the Bible is not the, the town clown or the village idiot, some, someone who kind of messes around and does stupid things. No, the biblical meaning of a fool is a profoundly spiritual term, and it refers first and foremost to someone who lives and acts as a practical atheist, as if there is no God. Psalm 14 verse 1 The fool says in his heart, there's no God. It's the voice of the practical atheist. I I can live and and do life without any relationship to God. One commentator says a a fool is someone who lives contrary to reality. For example, a builder who ignores the laws of gravity is a fool. A, A farmer who ignores the seasons is a fool. Anyone who ignores the nature of things is a fool. Therefore, the greatest fool is the one who ignores the greatest reality, which is God. This is the most damning of all God's statements in this parable because it reveals this man's final state before God. God says to him, you've lived your life. As a practical atheist, denying me, living as if I didn't exist, taking all that I gave you to use for my glory, and you spent it all on yourself. And so now you will die in your state of choosing. You will spend all eternity apart from me, and nothing of this world will provide you any comfort or security in the next. And so that ends off the parable incredible, striking contrast between this man's thinking and the truth, the spiritual truth that God is revealing to us in this parable. But, but Jesus is not finished yet. Because in the final place, we see Jesus now turning to the crowds to apply the truth of this parable to them. So in the fourth place, applying the truth in verse 21. Jesus ends the parable with a brief word of application to his hearers and to us this morning. So it is with the one who lays up treasure for himself, but is not rich towards God. As uncomfortable as it must have been for that chap who revealed his heart to Jesus through the question which he just blurted out so too it is uncomfortable for us this morning as we consider the final application which Jesus makes. The question Jesus is asking us this morning is this, where is your treasure? Where does your heart really lie? Is it in some way like this rich man who says, I will accumulate my goods so that I will have plenty so that for the many years that I have ahead, I can enjoy my life in comfort and security because through this all, I know that I finally arrived. If so, if that's your thinking this morning, God is saying to you today, take care. Be on your guard against all covetousness for one's life does not consist in the abundance of his possessions. It does not. Beware, says Jesus. There's a big warning sign flashing over the pages of Scripture today. Do you see even a little bit of yourself in the rich man? Perhaps you're not as far down the road as him yet, because the crops of your life, your career, your investments, they haven't produced as much abundance as his. But nevertheless, you are longing for and and hoping for that day to arrive soon. You can't wait for your ship to come in, that big deal to close, that big promotion to be obtained. Whatever it is that you're hoping for, Jesus says, beware. Be on your guard. The enemy of your soul is crouching at the door and is ready to overpower you. If you carry on this road, the day will come when your soul will be demanded of you, when God will call it back to himself. And in that day, he will declare you to be a fool. So beware. Instead, I want us to see this morning that this warning of God in Scripture, as every warning of God in Scripture, is also an exit sign to avoid the danger. God does not give us these warnings in Scripture to to make life miserable for us, to to cause us as Christians to to walk around with all this this guilt and wait upon us. No, on the contrary, God in His grace gives us these warnings in order to save us, to save us from ourselves, to to save us from the, the lies of the devil, in order to save us from the eternal consequences which await us if we continue on this path. And so I I want you to see the the exit which which God presents to us in this passage. You see, this rich man, to some degree or another, is you and me today. And yet God, God comes to us in the person of the Lord Jesus Christ. and, And Jesus says, I gave up the wealth of heaven so that you could be eternally rich. I became a man with nothing in this world so that you could gain everything in the world to come. I gave up my life so that you could gain eternal life. I surrendered my soul to suffer God's punishment and wrath so that your soul could be eternally happy in the presence of God. I took your foolishness upon myself, says Jesus, so that you can be clothed in the wedding garments of righteousness. So either you you lay up earthly treasures for yourself and you die a fool, or you recognize that the death that you and I deserve to die, Jesus died in our place, so that the life which which our soul truly craves will find all its joy and all its security and all its purpose in our relationship with God. Preaching, teaching like this which makes us feel uncomfortable is worthless unless we find comfort in the uncomfortableness of Jesus Christ on the cross. So I pray that God would continue to probe our hearts by his Holy Spirit this morning. So that unlike the rich fool, we will find all our comfort, all our joy all our satisfaction, all our meaning and purpose and identity in the person of Jesus Christ and his finished work on the cross. And how will we know then? Remember I said at the beginning of our series that the the parables of Jesus were meant to to divide. How do we know which side of the divide of Jesus' parable you are, are on today? Which side of this divide have you ended up in? Those who are out, the fool, the person who lays up treasure for himself, and those who are in, the children of God, those whose lives are rich towards God. How do you know which side of the divide you're on? I wish we could continue to look at the rest of what Jesus says, and I urge you to continue today or in the week ahead to, to read the rest of what Jesus says immediately following this. Because in the very next section, Jesus helps us to see what it looks like to live your life rich towards God. We know what it looks like to live your life rich toward yourself. What does it look like to live your life rich towards God? Let me just point you to a few verses in, in the section ahead, chapter 12 and verse 32. Jesus says, Do not be afraid, little flock. Because your father delights to give you the kingdom. Sell your possessions and give to the poor. Make money bags for yourselves that that won't grow old. An inexhaustible treasure in heaven where no thief comes near and no moth destroys. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Be ready for service and have your lamps lit You are to be like people waiting for their master to return from the wedding banquet so that when he comes and knocks, they can open the door for him at once. Blessed will be those servants the master finds alert when he comes. Truly, I tell you, he will get ready, have them recline at the table, and then come and serve them. Well, May this be true of of all of us as we eagerly await the Lord's return as we eagerly prepare for His return, and as we daily go out and live our lives in the light of the gospel, rich towards God. Let's pray. Father, we, we do come before You this morning again and we just marvel at the, the wisdom and the insight of Your Word, of the, the Word who became flesh, the Lord Jesus Christ, who, who spoke these words Incredible truths in such simple ways, and yet truths which penetrate deep into our hearts and expose the the dark recesses of our hearts. Lord, it's uncomfortable when your word shines in like this. It's uncomfortable when we have to evaluate our lives and our attitudes to the things of this world in in the mirror of your word. We want to thank you for your grace in in not only the shining and, and, and the warning, but in revealing to us the way, the way of escape, the way of salvation, the way of true joy and happiness and purpose and identity which is found only in the Lord Jesus Christ. Oh Lord Jesus, we want to thank you that you gave up everything in order to redeem us, in order to purchase us for yourself. How it must grieve you then when we, in the light of all that you have done, chase after these fickle, temporary, earthly things. Forgive us, we pray, Lord, for so easily chasing after the things of this world, hoping to find meaning and purpose and fulfillment in things other than yourself. Help us to see all that you've given to us, our gifts, our abilities, our our careers, our positions, our possessions. Everything we have is a gift from you to be used for your glory, to be used in the context of your kingdom. Help us to be people who are rich towards God in the way that we think and speak and act. May that be so evident in this world around us, which is so me-centered, self-centered. That we would be people who are just in everything, pointing people to the incredible riches of your grace, the incredible treasures which are stored up for those who are in Christ. Lord, help us, we pray, expose our hearts and help us to be the people that you've called us to be. Help us to walk in step with your Spirit. For we pray this in Jesus' name and for his glory. Amen.